0: Romans 12, starting at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not, not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function... So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for the, the blessing and privilege of coming together and lifting up our voices to you and, and digging into your word and, and praising and worshiping you together. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to do so together as a body and we thank you father for the power that you manifest when we serve each other in love when we give preference to each other in honor we pray that this body would be impacted by your word this morning and that we would be more and more effective as the day draws near in encouraging and uplifting one another so that the work of Jesus Christ proceeds with power. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I don't know if any of you are feeling the tree pollens the way I am, but man. I've got a question for every uh, believer in this room. Why are you here why are you part of the church of jesus christ and why are you part of this local body why should you bother getting up on sundays to attend the meetings of this church or being involved in a ministry group or pursuing friendships with other believers here why should you uh bother trying to be involved in the ministries of this church. It may be a surprise to you to hear that in virtually all of the New Testament passages that address the question, why are you in the church? God's answer is not fundamentally about your needs or the needs of your family. God's answer is instead about how he intends to use you in order to serve the needs of other believers and to build up and strengthen his body as we work together as one. The fact is that when God talks about any of the divinely appointed relationships into which he has placed you with other believers, whether it be your marriage, your role in the church, or friendships that you have with other, other Christians, God doesn't talk about your needs. He talks about your assignment. In fact, he tells you over and over very intentionally to disregard your own needs. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't care about your well-being. It means that your well-being is his job, not yours. And that, by by the way, is huge. (laughs) That one point, if properly understood in the context of marriage, marriage, would revolutionize a lot of marriages that your assignment from God is not to pursue your own well-being. It's to be used by God to serve the well-being of the other person, to be an instrument in the hands of God. God expects you, no, he commands you to focus your your attention and your efforts on being useful to him in serving others, not in pursuing your pleasure or your well-being. The passage that we're examining this morning is no exception to that pattern. As Paul begins to dive into practical exhortation about the outworking of our faith in light of all that God has done for us, all that he's talked about for the last 11 chapters, his first exhortations have to do with each of our assignments within the body of Christ, the church. And those assignments are never, never about self. Here's where we're going this morning. We're going to see first in verse 3 that God is sovereign over each believer's faith. He's going to provide an exhortation that uh, in essence is don't think too highly of yourself. And the basis of that exhortation is the fact that God has allotted to each of us a measure of faith. Then in verses 4 and 5, Paul will talk about the body of Christ. One body with many members and many functions. And then in verses 6 to 8, he will exhort us to put our gifts to maximum use. First, God's sovereignty over each believer's faith. An exhortation and a basis for that exhortation. For the grace... For through the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now the first word, for, (laughs) ties these verses back to what Paul has just said in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, to that very foundational exhortation to us to present our bodies as living, holy, acceptable sacrifices in response to, in light of, the mercies of God. All that God has done in Christ that Paul has laid out in the first 11 chapters. And secondly, to be not conformed to this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that, we will be sold out to God's good and acceptable and perfect will. Now, Paul's exhortation here in verse 3 is, Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. I don't believe there's any coincidence here that Paul uses the word think right after having spoken about our minds. Perhaps the most critical and foundational transformation that happens in our minds as we submit ourselves to the will of God is that our minds become humbled. Our minds become submitted to God's revelation of himself. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If you back up, of course, in Romans and look in chapter 1, verses 18 and following, you see that the rejection and replacement of God's revealed character and God's revealed will in favor of man's own arrogant and foolish speculations is how the whole downward spiral of mankind got started. That's how we died. And the flip side of that is that submission of those foolish speculations to the revealed truth of God is how God solves that problem. So, the very first specific command that Paul gives to us as to this transformation of the mind of every believer once we have trusted in Jesus Christ is that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We are to think in a way that is fitting in light of what God has revealed about himself, about us, and about other believers, and about his body, as we'll see. The declaration on which that exhortation is based is that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. The word measure means just what it says, uh, a a quantity, a portion. I have to admit that I resisted that idea at first. In fact, my brother Philip straightened me out. Uh, Excuse me, my brother Patrick, they both begin with a P. Paul is saying that the measure of faith that God has given is not the same for every believer. That's what, that's what I had trouble with. Really, it's as plain as the nose on my face because as you proceed through the rest of this epistle, Paul makes a huge point of that. He spends a lot of time talking about differences in the measure or strength of faith from one believer to the next. In chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. And then he begins chapter 15, similarly, he says, Now we who are strong, and he means strong in faith, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. And then the example he gives is that Jesus didn't please himself. One of the major themes in this epistle and all the remaining chapters is the exhortation to those who are strong in faith to lovingly forbear with and make, it, make accommodation for those who are weak in faith and for neither to judge the other. The essence of Paul's exhortation here in Romans 12 verse 3 is because it is God rather than men who determines how much faith each man has, those who are stronger in faith have no basis to see themselves as superior or more valuable in the eyes of God than those who are weaker. And the eyes of God are the only eyes that matter. And back in chapter 9, Paul said, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? And he now applies that same principle in the arena of differences in the measure of faith that one believer has compared to another. Now, if anyone had cause to boast about the strength of their faith, it was Paul. By the time he wrote this epistle, his faith had been sorely tested, harshly tested, and he had passed those tests over and over. And yet, instead of looking down his nose at those who were weaker in faith, Paul says, Through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought. Through the grace given to me. See, Paul always saw his own performance in doing the work of God as entirely the result of God's gracious doing. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 is one of the theme verses of my life. Not that we are adequate in ourselves We consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul, that was a huge concept to Paul. I believe he placed the exhortation that we find in this verse right at the beginning of four chapters of practical commands about how we work out our faith Precisely because we are so prone to giving ourselves credit for what God does in us and through us. And we're so prone to make comparisons between ourselves and other believers. We really have trouble recognizing that it's simply not about us. It's always about God. Paul is saying, okay, if your faith is strong, that's good. But praise God, not yourself. Because God is the one who gave it to you. He's also saying by extension of that same truth, if your faith is weaker than another brother's, don't beat yourself up. Be grateful to God that he has granted you faith, the faith that you have, and then put it to good use. That's where he's going to go in this passage. Put it to good use. Now, of course, this is yet another point at which God's way of doing things doesn't coincide very well with our way, right? Especially with our view of fairness. In chapters 8 and 9, we saw that God's choice from eternity past of some men to be vessels of mercy and others to be vessels of wrath was purely a function of his own sovereignty. Men have nothing to say about it. It doesn't depend on what men do or what men choose. Now in chapter 12, Paul says that God allots or assigns a measure of faith to each believer and that measure is not the same from one believer to the next. And of course, our immediate response to that is, but God, if you gave a bunch of faith to Paul, you have to give a bunch of faith to me or you're not being fair. And God doesn't even bother entertaining that protest. God's purpose is and I hope you hear me here, God's purposes for his people have much more to do with the corporate realm than the individual realm. His grace manifests itself differently in us precisely because his focus is on what he intends to do through us together rather than separately. I'll try to explain that as we go. Paul Says that God grants different measures of faith and different measures and manifestations of, of grace, and the only one who determines those differences is Him. He doesn't give us a vote. And surely, Paul knows as he's writing this that that violates our concept of fairness. And yet, He makes no attempt to resolve that tension. <laughs> Just as when He talked about God's sovereign choosing, He, he simply dismisses our concept of fairness, and doesn't worry about the heartburn it causes us. So, that's what I'm going to do too. But there is another tension, a very constructive tension that the Bible does address with regard to these differences in measure of faith. See, the question that you and I should be contemplating on a regular basis is not, God, why didn't you give me more faith than I have? It's, what do you say will make my faith greater than it is today? And a corollary to that, what must I do with the faith that I've been given? Paul addresses that second question, what must I do with the faith I've been given, head on in the rest of this passage. And I believe by implication he addresses the first one. What's going to make my faith grow? See, what we do or don't do with the faith we've been given by God impacts whether that faith grows or does not grow. The fact that God has given one of you a different measure of faith than the other doesn't mean that that's the end of the story. Whatever faith we start with in the Christian life is not all that we are going to get. On the contrary, the Bible is filled with stories of faith that grows. People who start with a little and end up with a lot, right? Now, i got to... A couple of props here, if I can find them. One of them's in a baggie, so give me a second. All right, see that? Can anybody see it well enough to tell what it is? It's an acorn from an oak tree. This is a seedling from my mother-in-law's backyard from a big tree. Now, this one might brag to this one and say, Look, I'm, a, I'm already bigger than you are. I got leaves, I got roots, you're just an acorn. But if I plant both of these in my backyard, which one's gonna produce the bigger tree? Don't know yet, right? You know, it, it depends on, in large measure, on which one gets watered properly and nurtured and fed properly. What you start with doesn't necessarily determine what you end with. There are three examples I want to mention. And by the way, I know I'm spending a whole lot of time on this first verse. That's because we have trouble with that concept that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And so I'm trying to connect some dots so that we can get a biblical perspective on what that's about. Three examples of faith that started small and got bigger. First, Moses. When Moses met God in the form of the burning bush on Mount Sinai in Exodus 3... God told him that he's going to use him to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. Moses' initial response wasn't a textbook example of unreserved trust in God. Moses first said to God, Lord, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. In effect, he was telling God that God probably hadn't thought this through adequately or else he wouldn't be sending the likes of Moses to confront a guy like Pharaoh. And God's response was amazingly straightforward and amazingly simple. God said, Moses, who made your mouth? In effect, God was making it clear to Moses that the question is never, our question to God is never, Lord, how suitable am I for the task that you have assigned to me? It is always, Lord, how suitable are you for the task that you have assigned to me? Anyone who knows the rest of that story knows that Moses' faith in God grew dramatically over time. But not all at once, and not consistently in a positive direction. There were times when Moses struggled hard to understand why God was doing things the way he was doing. And there were some times when Moses cried out to God in utter despair. But even though he struggled at times to trust God, one thing was very clear. With the faith that he had, Moses and God proved to Moses over and over that he was going to keep his promises. I love the discussion this morning in the worship about chesed, God's loving kindness. You know what that word is about? It's always a verb. It is about the execution of God's steadfast covenant love. It's about the fact that God always, always keeps his promises and plays out his character without exception. That's what loving kindness means every time it occurs in the Old Testament. God's faithfulness never wavered and as Moses beheld God's steadfast covenant faithfulness and love his faith grew. That's what happens when you get to know God better. Your faith grows. All right, let's back up a little bit in history and consider Abraham for a moment. When he was still named Abram, he didn't have much data about God when God called him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and said, okay, I got a place I want you to go, a place called Canaan. Abraham didn't know anything about that place. In fact, he didn't even know where it was. But he did at that point what God said. And after God had brought Abin to Canaan and shown him around a little bit and then revealed to him his wonderful covenant promises of land and seed and blessing, the next thing that's recorded that Abraham did was to lie to Pharaoh about the identity of his wife, Sarai. See, Sarai was apparently really, really a knockout. And Abram was worried that Pharaoh would see her. Pharaoh had a tendency to accumulate wives, right? And so that he would see Sarai and he would kill Abraham so that he could take Sarai as his wife. And so so Abram decided to structure out that possibility by simply telling everyone in Egypt that this woman was his sister instead of his wife. Now, that was actually half true. But you know what God calls a half-truth? A lie. In taking this approach, Abram would have put all of God's covenant promises at risk if it were possible for a mere mortal to do so. But the point is, it was not possible for him to do so. He showed gross disregard for God's revealed plan and agenda, his purposes. It could hardly be said at that point that Abram was acting in obedience that proceeded from faith in God. But what did God do? God showed himself faithful to his covenant promises over and over. In fact, while he was there in Egypt lying to Pharaoh, God blessed him and prospered him and sent him out with more than he came in with. There were times along the way when Abram acted in a manner that demonstrated genuine trust in God. There were times when God told Abe, for instance, that, uh, that the promised descendants would come through his 90-year-old wife. Uh, first, he didn't trust very much. He fell on his face and laughed. But then he came to trust in that promise. In fact, when we looked at that Faith Hall of Fame passage before, you know, his and Sarah's faith in that promise is what they become remembered for, along with faith that he demonstrated later. Even after the promised covenant son Isaac was born, Abraham and Sarah, um, well, to Abraham and Sarah, Abraham repeated the same lie about his wife's identity to another king, a guy named Abimelech. <laughs> and he did it for the same reason, to protect himself, after he had seen God fulfill his promise. But what never changed? God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to what he had promised never wavered. And eventually Abraham got it, right? We talked about that last week too. He became so convinced that God keeps his promises that when God commanded him to take the life of that covenant son through whom the promised descendants were supposed to come, Abraham took him up a mountain, tied him to an altar, and raised a knife to slay him. And God stopped him and provided a substitute. Abraham got it. What was it that caused the growth of Abraham's faith and brought him to the point of obeying God without reservation in the midst of one of the most severe tests any man has been handed by God? Was it Abraham's consistent obedience? No. It was that Abraham repeatedly beheld God's character. He saw God being consistently true to his covenant promises. The same could be said of Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, and every other redeemed child of God in every age. God grows our faith by revealing his character and his promises and by acting always in keeping with his character and his promises. The primary cause of our faith is God's sovereign choice to give it to us. And the way he imparts that faith to us and grows it is by revealing himself to us, by causing us to know him. So if you want greater and stronger faith, one of the most critical things that you can do (laughs) is to spend time beholding the only worthy object of faith. Know him. And how do you do that? Well, first, you know his word. You get familiar with his revelation of himself. But there are two realms in which we get to know God better. One is his word, and the other is his ongoing works. And obedience fortifies our knowledge of God in both those arenas. In John chapter 7, The Jews were marveling at Jesus' words when he was speaking in the temple. And they knew he was the son of a carpenter, and so they were talking among themselves, and they said, How has this man become so learned, having never been educated? And Jesus responded in John 7, verses 16 and 17, by saying to them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And then he said this, If any man is willing to do his will... If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. You see, a willingness to do the will of God makes the person hearing God's word recognize it and receive it for what it is. A heart that is already submitted to doing what God instructs is a heart that is already inclined to understand what God declares. So obedience fortifies our discernment about God's Word and our trust in God's Word. But obedience also has a bearing on what we know about God through His ongoing works. The surest way that we clearly see and rightly interpret the works of God is in the midst of our obedience to Him. Have you ever noticed that the believers who are most vigorously engaged in obeying God are also the ones who have the greatest and most compelling testimonies about God's faithfulness? And on the flip side, those who live lives of restrained obedience, protecting their own comfort, struggle to find cause to trust God in the day to day. There's a third guy here, Gideon. When God commanded Gideon to go up against the Midianites, it was pretty hard to argue that at first Gideon obeyed without reservation. Because Gideon made a deal with God. He said, God, okay, if you convince me, then I'll do it. And so first, God condescended and showed Gideon his power by taking a fleece of wet goat hair and... Laying it on a, I mean, basically, he made a, he made a fleece that that Gideon laid on the ground, soaking wet, even though the ground around it was bone dry. And then, when that wasn't quite enough yet to convince Gideon, God flipped that, reversed it, and he made he made the ground soaking wet and the fleece bone dry. At that point, uh, Gideon had enough evidence to start making preparations for the battle. But then God said to him, "Okay, you know those thirty-two thousand soldiers that you've got." We're going to whittle that down some. And he cut it down to 300. And then he sent Gideon into the battle with pitchers and trumpets as his primary weapons against an army that was described as being like locusts in number. I think the butterflies in Gideon's stomach were the size of pelicans when he went into that battle. But Gideon obeyed God. He obeyed God. And if he had not obeyed God and taken that tiny little army up against the Midianites, he would never have gotten to see the mighty and miraculous victory that God delivered on that day. See, his obedience brought about a more profound experience of God's faithfulness than would ever have been possible without his obedience. His obedience put his faith in the afterburner, and by the way, after that battle, I seriously doubt that Gideon had to ever ask again for a wet goat skin. See, that's how it works. Faith feeds obedience and obedience feeds faith. My brother Kerry calls that a feedback loop. You want to know God better so you'll trust him more? Then be obedient to what you already know of God. Of his character and his will and at the same time diligently seek to know more of him through his word. Put both feet into obeying him without reservation while you dwell in his presence and behold him. And your faith will grow. Obeying without reservation in the exercise of your faith and the use of your spiritual gifts is exactly at the heart of where Paul goes with the rest of this passage. In verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about the ramifications of this thing he's just declared. That is, that God sovereignly gives to each believer a measure of faith. He relates those differences to the function that each believer fulfills within the body of Christ. He says, For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This is a beautiful picture that Paul repeats often. He likens the church to a human body. He says it's one body with many members and, of course, one head, who is Christ in Ephesians 4. And the members are like uh, the limbs and parts of a human body. And think about it. If every body part had the same function, it would be a really strange body. And that's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks at great length about how the body works. He says in 1 Corinthians twelve seventeen and 18, he says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired just as he desired. In that passage in 1 Corinthians 12, just as here in Romans 12, who's the active agent? It's God. And it's only God. He is the only one who has anything to say about the assignment of each person's spiritual gift so that all the necessary functions are performed and the whole body works together as one, just as he intended The heart of what Paul's saying in these two verses is that God made us different precisely so that when we are put together, the body works as he intended it to. If he made us all the same, it wouldn't work that way. It's not unity in diversity. It's unity because of diversity. God designed diversity. That even includes differences in how much faith each of us has. And this is the thing that was a, this was the epiphany for me as I was studying this. See, the differences that God has designed among us make us dependent on each other. And they make us far better together than we are separately. There are certain brothers and sisters in this body that sharpen me every time I'm in their presence. (laughs) The strength and quality of their faith Challenges me to greater faith And here's the interesting part The process of challenging my weaker faith Puts their stronger faith to use In a way that makes the body better They need my weaker faith And I need their stronger faith Why? Because it's not about me and them It's about us I need them, and by God's wonderful design, they need me. What a great reality that is. If we all had the same measure of faith or the same job in the body of Christ, that interdependence simply wouldn't happen. God didn't give us different measures of faith, different gifts, so that the body would be divided and scattered, but precisely so that the body would be interdependent and that it would be at its absolute best and most powerful when we are together and not separate. Here's a question for you. How productive do you think your body would be if your dominant hand, your left lung, and four toes on your right foot took one week out of every month off? That wouldn't work so well, would it? And, and then let's say after you finally started to kind of adapt and adjust to not having those body parts for, for you know, a week, then they showed up again. And you had to kind of reacclimate and get back into the habit of dealing with those things that you had previously taken advantage of. In Hebrews chapter ten, verses twenty four and twenty five. Uh hang on here. Let's see if I can get it back. Hebrews ten, twenty four and twenty five, it says Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God created the church in such a way as to make us dependent on each other. So when we're gathered, uh, when we're gathered, we're good. When we're scattered and isolated, the church suffers and is less effective. So, God strongly exhorts us to be together regularly, to assemble together, to encourage and build each other up, to work together in order to accomplish the good deeds that he has assigned to us as a church, as a body. Now, sure, sometimes people have to move. They have to go and go to a different church because of family concerns or job issues or whatever, That doesn't stop them from putting their gifts to use in the body of Christ because the body of Christ is a worldwide entity. There are some who are homebound. They're ill or they're caring for someone who's ill. And they simply cannot come together with other believers on a regular basis. But even for most of those, there are ways that they can put their gifts to work for the good of the body. Most of us here know some prayer warriors who aren't here all the time. But they're providing the air cover, right? For the battle. There are those who write letters, who make calls, who pray hard, even though they can't be here. And they are serving the body of Christ. But let's face it, guys. Most of the believers who treat involvement with the body as a take-it-or-leave-it proposition, mostly leave it, are perfectly able to be part of the body. They simply don't have that as a priority. And I can say on the authority of God's word that if that's the case, their priorities need to be rearranged. And I'm talking to myself because there was a time when I let myself seriously lapse in terms of involvement with the body of Christ. Now, I'm going to re reread this passage again. And as I read it, I want you to ask yourself if it applies more now than it did when it was first written. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, is that day that he was talking about Nearer now than it was when those words were written? Well, I certainly think so, unless time's working backwards. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see that brother or sister beside you or in front of you, behind you? He or she is more valuable to you than your liver. When you stand in the presence of God, you're going to have a glorified body, and this body of flesh and bone won't be of any concern to you. But that brother or sister that's near you is going to stand in the presence of God with you for all eternity. And until you get to stand in His presence, that brother, that sister is your trench partner in the spiritual battle that is raging around you and me 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365.25 days a year we wake up behind enemy lines and God has made us to need each other in order to fight the battle with full force you need each other and the body of Christ needs both of you that you and that person that's beside you and the urgency of that need is increasing over time not decreasing By the way, the metaphors in Scripture, I've said this before, I think we often confuse the metaphors with the realities to which they are associated, the realities to which they point. For instance, we see the relationship between Christ and the church as a metaphor for human marriage, as a picture of marriage, and it's supposed to be the other way around. We see... The word of God as a picture or a metaphor for physical food. But in reality, God gave human, He gave us human marriage as a picture of the greater reality, which is the relationship between Christ and His church. He gave us the food that you and I eat a few times each day with elevensies and snacks thrown in. He gave us that food as a picture to us of our necessary food, which is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the same applies here. The complexity of our bodies that we get this this memorial that we walk around with, this reminder that we walk around with 24 hours a day, it's supposed to show us how the body of Christ is intended to work because that's the greater reality. This is going to fade away. This is going to get replaced. The body is not. We invest so much time nurturing the pictures neglecting the realities. The unity and effective function of the body of Christ in love is of huge importance to God, and he intends for it to be of huge importance to us who are his children. In the last few verses of this passage, Paul exhorts us to put our gifts to maximum use. He says, Since... We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. That phrase, according to the proportion of his faith, is grammatically tied most directly with the gift of prophecy. But I believe Paul, Paul puts it there first because what he's really saying is that's the measure by which every believer is to exercise every gift according to the proportion of his faith. Whatever measure of faith you've been given, put it to work with all diligence, without reservation, without compromise. It would be easy to conclude that if God gave you a weaker measure of faith than some other brother or sister, then you're exempt from being obedient at the same level as that other brother or sister. If God didn't give me the faith of Paul, then he certainly shouldn't expect of me the works of Paul. But Paul summarily disposes of such an idea in verses 6 through 8. The verb is missing in the Greek. But there's a clear imperative force, and that force is straightforward. Whatever your spiritual gifts are, and whatever measure of grace and faith you have been given by God, your assignment is to put your gifts to maximum use. With liberality, with diligence, with cheerfulness, without holding anything back. What if you don't know what your gifts are? There are some in the body who take this approach. They say, I don't really know what my gifts are, so it would be wrong for me to try to do any specific work of ministry because I might be exercising a gift I don't have, and wouldn't that mess everything up? No. <laughs> it wouldn't. Unless God comes to you in a vision and tells you what your spiritual gifts are, and I haven't known that to happen very often, the only way that you're going to find out is to be faithfully serving in the body. Just minister. Just serve. That we know we're all called to, right? We're called to love and serve and forgive and, and pour our lives into each other for the good of the body. If you do that, your gifts will become evident if God wants them to. I don't even think some people have to know their gift in order to use it. By the way, I do believe that some of us have more than one spiritual gift, and I also have come to believe, largely through things I've learned from uh, from Bob's handling of the Word, that uh, that those gifts may not be static, that, they may, that God may shift them around according to the need of the body or the need of a particular work of ministry. He's the one who manages the gifts, right, not us. So we don't really have to be concerned about those things. Those are God's problem. We are called to just be faithful in serving others in love and proclaiming Christ with devotion to the unity and well-being of the body of Christ. And then God will be faithful to put your gifts to good and effective use. By the way, as part of that interdependence within the body that we've been looking at, I believe God generally uses the body of Christ to identify an individual's gifts. Now, I'm not saying that with, like that's the only way he does it, but that's the way it seems to me that he often does it. He may very well make your gift or gifts more evident to others in the body at first than they are to you. And the cool part about that is that by doing so, he uses the body to encourage you in the exercise of your gifts. And when he does that, the body gets stronger. The body works together instead of separately. I can tell you that I would have never considered taking on this role, the task of teaching and preaching that God has assigned to me at CBC, if many of you, whom I knew to be serious in your study of God's Word and in your walk with the Lord, had not encouraged me over and over in the 27 years that I was here before God brought me into this role. I don't think you can imagine what a blessing and ministry that has been to me. I'm telling you, I would not be here without it. And I pray that you will do the same for each other at CBC. Encourage one another to serve diligently. Take note of how your brothers and sisters are ministering most effectively and nudge them along to do it even more fervently. And the body will be stronger. Lovingly, lovingly and gently encourage each other in the body not to squander lives and creating piles of crippling emotional baggage by focusing on self. Your assignment and mine is to build up the body of Christ by focusing on building up one another in the body of Christ, encouraging one another to press on with the good works that God has, signed for, has assigned for us to carry out together. <laughs> the work of evangelism and the work of discipleship are the work of Christ. He's the head. We're the body. It happens when the body does what the body is supposed to do. Apply all diligence and faithfulness to using your gifts to the fullest and know always that God will take care of your needs while he's using you to tend to the needs of others. That's a very freeing reality and it's good for the body. One brother told me a long time ago that he prayed that by the time I die, I will have burned up myself in the service of God's agenda. I love that. I love that. That is my prayer for myself. But here's the cool part. Our God is an overflowing well, so we never get burned up. We never find that our resources are at an end. And every time we think they're about to be, God just gives us more. He's an overflowing well. There's, n- there's never an end to what he can ask of us because there is never an end to what he can do through us. Loving Father, I thank you for this body. This is a family. This is a dear and beloved group of brothers and sisters. They have ministered to me in, in ways they can't imagine. And Father, I know only because you are my adequacy that I have ministered to them. And that's how it works. We confess to you, Lord, that you are sovereign over our gifts, over our faith, over our usefulness to you. It's not about us. It's about you. And that's, that's wonderful. It frees us up. It, it, it allows us to serve with great joy because we know that there is no end to what our God can do through his instruments. We thank you for that amazing truth. We pray that you would make us ever more faithful, that you would make this body powerful for your eternal purposes. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.